few years back was driving back town uh, from church camp. This was actually in Missouri. I remember it like it was yesterday, though. I was driving from church camp to visit someone, a church member, who was in the hospital, and then I needed to get back to church camp in order to speak that evening. And on the way, while I am driving in a hurry down the highway, there's a car in front of me, and I noticed how suddenly they just pulled off to the side and came to a stop. Could have been a flat tire, some kind of car problem, apparently, and I couldn't tell. But before I could slow down and get stopped behind them, I'm already past the car. You've been there. And so I begin this process in my mind as I drive further on down the highway, justifying to myself why I need not go back and check on that person. After all, I was on my way to help someone, and that was important. And I was short on time, and I couldn't be late. I can't be. Somebody else will help this person. Besides, they were probably on their way to rob a bank or something like that. <laughs> Have you ever been there where the opportunity to do the good thing that you knew you probably should have done went behind you, and then you began a process up here to keep you from going back. We have been talking for a few weeks now about being the best neighbor ever. Yay! Best neighbor ever. And part of that means actually considering the people who are around us, a.k.a. our neighbors. And today, we're going to come to grips with the tendency that I think all of us have to tend to try to justify ourselves rather than looking at and pausing and thinking about those people and how we can be good neighbors. The people that God has placed around us. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, if you would do that, please. The story about being a good neighbor, very familiar story. Chapter 10, verse 25 of Luke. I want to just jump right into this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, pause, first of all, I want you to notice in this story that we're going to read this morning the reason that Jesus is going to tell it. The reason he's going to give this story here in Luke chapter 10 that we're going to read is because this man wanted to justify himself. A man who is making mistakes about God's love, mistakes that sometimes we make and that we need to avoid because I think many of us are the same way up here. We try to justify ourselves. We do that, don't we? Or is that just me? I hope it's not just me. I used to think that this lawyer, this expert in the law, just started out with bad motives. He was, he was trying to trap Jesus, trying to trip him up, and then seeing Jesus' answer and interacting with him, he had a change of heart, and so he tries to make everything okay by kind of changing the questions. 
Well, it is true. He definitely starts out with the intention of testing Jesus. Luke says that right here, doesn't he? He wanted to test him. I find it very interesting that his reply is the very reply that Jesus gave when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? Remember? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus threw in a bonus answer. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the right answer, by the way. It is no small matter when Jesus says, right, do this, and you will live. I'm interested in that. That would have been enough for me right there. Amen? Just do this and you can live forever? That's a great answer. But let's pay attention to that answer that Jesus said would make you live. It is so life-affecting. It is so all-encompassing It covers every aspect of life. Romans 13.10, Paul takes that same kind of answer and he talks about love and he says love is fulfilling the law. Love. And then Luke records these words, that this expert of the law, this lawyer, was desiring to justify himself. And I don't think he was just backpedaling to make his first question sound okay. When he went on to the second question that he now is about to ask, there is a little bit more testing going on. Now this guy is someone whose whole approach to God is still off. He is, Luke says, desiring to justify himself. Like the people in chapter 18, verse 9, where Luke says they were trusting in their own righteousness. I believe that Jesus told him this story for something bigger than just answering the question, who is my neighbor? Think about it. We're about to look at that. This man who asks, who is my neighbor? He asks that question and Jesus answers him with a story and with a question that never answers the question. I love it. And this supposed expert needed more than a definition of the word neighbor. He needed Jesus to teach him about God's love. I'm just going to guess that we could benefit from that, a look at that today. We can't fully harvest the wisdom from this parable, the story that Jesus told, until we understand that's why he told it. So get that in our minds. Let's all get it in our minds. Jesus tells this story because this man wants to what? Justify himself. All right? When we realize this story is here to teach us how to rightly live out God's love, I think it will hit home with every one of us. And this year, as we gear up to be the best neighbor ever in three weeks, three weeks, it should feel even closer to home. There is a picture of how to do this in this story that we call the parable of the good Samaritan. You know, this may not even be a parable. It could be a story of a real event that Jesus chose to tell. He never says this is only a story with a point. He says here's a story to meet the need of a moment. Let's go again to chapter 10, verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Let's go back there for a moment. Jericho is a city north of Jerusalem, about 17 miles. When you and I look at a map, and then we hear in this story that the man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, first of all, we got to get the directions right. He is going north, but the fact is, anybody who would walk that road would go down almost 4,000 feet by the time they had finished the journey. It was a rugged, desert road. We assume that the traveler is a Jew, and the road that he is traveling on alone tends to be the haunt of first century muggers. And so, of course, he is attacked by robbers, being by himself. In this culture, clothing is one of your most important resources. We don't think about that. You get a spot on your shirt, you go to your closet, you get a different shirt, right? That's not how these people lived. I remember visiting India, how interesting it was to me when we were talking about people being baptized there, that they would have to do that before it got cool at night. You know, it goes down to 70 degrees there at night. That they could not be wet because most of them owned only one set of clothes, so here's this man. They take this resource away from him that's very important. And these muggers then, taking his clothes, beat him to a pulp. Luke, who wrote this, is a physician. And the word that he uses to describe the condition of this man isn't a very optimistic word. It literally says he was left half dead. That's a kind of pessimistic view, isn't it? And what the robbers didn't do, the hot sun would do. In other words, unless somebody helped this man, he would die. That's the condition that he's in. And fortunately for him, there are some other people on the road that day. Help is on the way. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Priest and a Levite. Not only were they also Jews, but they were also Jewish religious leaders. Good men. The priest may have been returning from serving in the temple in Jerusalem. He also has been in Jerusalem. He's on the road. The Levite belonged to the tribe of those who were the assistants to the priest. And both of them knew the Lord's commands to love and care for people. We don't know what they were thinking. Maybe we can imagine it for a moment. Put on your sanctified imaginator with me. For all they knew... This man would die without help. They had to have some reasons for passing by this poor guy. How could they do that? How did they justify their action that day? Maybe they were thinking something like this. I'm too busy to stop and do this. I'm too limited in my resources. How many donkeys have I got with me? Oh, just one. It's too hopeless. This guy probably wouldn't live if I helped him anyway. It's too dangerous. 
What if the guys who jumped him jumped me? I'm too limited in finances. What if this guy, I start to help him, and he turns out to be a long-term financial commitment? Maybe someone else who is better suited will come and help him out. I'm out here all alone. Who will even know if I don't help? Or worse yet, what if I did help and nobody found out about my self-sacrifice? Whatever it took, somehow both of these men managed to look at this man and leave him to die on the road. Now let's not skip over this part. Because for Jesus to tell this in this story flew right in the face of all the religious experts who were standing around trying to cause trouble for him. The very people who should have been the first to help this man are the ones who dropped the ball. And this morning, if you look at these two men and you see yourself in this story, good for you. Because you're being honest. How many times have I been preoccupied, been in a hurry, or just plain uncomfortable with a scene to the point where I saw someone lost and didn't stop to help? You won't have to travel far from here today, by the way, to find someone like this. I don't mean a Samaritan uh, or a Jewish man on the road who's been beaten up, but take a look around. There are people all over the community who have been mugged by lies, by the heartless abuse of this world. They've been beaten up. They have been left disenchanted on the roadside. They have been left half dead, helpless, without God, without hope in the world. And here we are able to give them exactly what they need. And if we don't, it's pretty certain that they may die forever. Take a look around your neighborhood. How are you doing at being the best neighbor ever? And ask yourself this morning, how can I make that better? Not just this Halloween, this month, but November and December and 2023. What can we do to be a better neighbor? Chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus goes on. He tells about the priest and the Levite, and then he says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now, if this man who had been beaten had been able to see that the man who was stopping to help him was a Samaritan, his first response might have been to feel even worse than he was already feeling. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. The feeling was mutual. If a Jewish person said the word Samaritan, he would have to spit twice to clean out his mouth after saying the word. Just one chapter before this, outside of a Samaritan village, Jesus and the disciples are traveling through and they want to stop off in the city, but it says the people of that city in Samaria would not receive them because they knew that they were headed for Jerusalem. True racism isn't limited to one people group, by the way. Racism is simply treating somebody better or worse just because of where they're from. Think about that. 
And there were plenty of Jews who hated Samaritans just because they were born Samaritans. There were plenty of Samaritans who hated Jews just because they were born Jews. Except this Samaritan man that Jesus is speaking about was different. Verse 33. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. He saw this man on the road, half dead. And there's that word, that strong word that describes the sick feeling that you get in your stomach when you have a strong feeling, when you hear bad news, when you feel so sorry for someone that it feels like your stomach just moves up into your throat. That's the word to describe how this man felt for what he saw. He looked down on this, <clears throat> this beaten man. It moved him. He just had to do something. Verse 34, Jesus says he did. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You know, it's one thing to look at a bad situation and to feel bad for somebody. Sometimes that's as far as we go. It is another thing, though, to look at a bad situation and then decide to take our time, to take our resources, to take our energy, and to spend them for the sake of helping someone else. The Samaritan did the first century equivalent to putting on Neosporin and Band-Aids. He put him on his own donkey what does that mean, by the way? Think about that. He put him on his own animal. It means that this Samaritan is walking. He took the injured man to Hotel 6 where Tom Bodet had left the light on for him. <clears throat> he paid a couple of days' wages to the innkeeper and promised to pay more if he needed to. In other words, this man went way beyond what the average person might be expected to do to help, even though it may not have been safe, it wasn't cheap, and these men were from two races of people that hated each other. And now, having told this whole story, Jesus still hasn't answered this guy's question. <laughs> Who is my neighbor? Instead, Jesus asks him a question. Verse 36, he gets to the end of the story. He says to this man, <clears throat> which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So by the time Jesus has finished, this man has him staring right in the face with the real issues in his life that he needs to address. He needed to learn about how to live God's love. And so I want to talk about three features of God's love that I think this, this story about the Good Samaritan helps us to see and how we can get them right just by taking a look at this story that Jesus told. So I'm done with the introduction. Here we go. Here's the first way. The first feature, and that is that God's love must be shown, not just talked about. Love God, love people, serve both. I've heard that somewhere. 
I believe in the usefulness and the validity of our mission statement at Central Christian Church. By the way, it's easy to remember, isn't it? It's easier than remembering what Thrive stands for. All right? Love God, love people, serve both. It aligns with what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. But knowing it, being able to say that, that's just the beginning. This expert that Jesus spoke to that day, he was an expert in the Old Testament law. He knew what the Old Testament said about love. And when Jesus said to him, what does the law say? He knew the answer. He had the right words. He could quote it. Jesus gave that same answer. Love God with everything that you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. This guy knew the law. He knew what it said about loving God and sharing him with others. But knowing it and talking about it, that's different than doing it, isn't it? Do we claim to have the love of God? Do we claim, like our mission statement says, to love God? Love has to be shown, not just spoken about. The Bible has to be practiced, not just read. Jesus even helped him in this. Did you notice his question right at the beginning? When he asked the question, what do I need to do? Jesus said to him, what does it say? That's a good question, isn't it? We've got to know what it says, amen? We've got to know what God's word says, If you don't read the Bible, you can't claim to know God's will. Can you hear Jesus' voice asking you, what does my word say? Okay. And then he asked him, how do you read it? He He didn't mean, do you read it in the morning? Do you use your iPhone? No. He meant, when you read it, do you know it? Do you understand it? How does it apply in your life? Because we need to go beyond just knowing God's word. We need to think about what that means. And then in verse 28, Jesus says to him, Okay, do this and you will live. Reading and knowing isn't enough. Jesus said you've got to put it into practice. God's love works that way. What about that love? That love that Jesus said was the greatest love. That love that he showed when he gave up his life for us. That love that is able to draw people to him. That love from which nothing else can separate us. That John 3.16 love that God showed us by sending his only son to live as a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. That love that God demonstrates while we were yet sinners in Christ died for us. That unconditional love, well, unconditionally offered to everyone that blows people away when it is shown to them in simple ways that the world has forgotten. God's love is something that's got to be shown. It can't just be talked about. And the front line that we do that is by sharing it with lost people who need to be saved. God's love must be shown. So we've got to ask ourselves where we fit in this story. Where do you fit? Are you figuring out, as you do, how can you be the best neighbor ever? Here's another feature of God's love that I see in this story, and that is that it needs to be a way of life, not just an isolated act. 
Hear this question again. This expert in the law is asking Jesus for a one-time act that would make him live forever. The verb tense here suggests it. Jesus, what's the magic pill? What's the hoop I've got to jump through? What do I need to do to get the receipt, the slip of paper that says on it, i got to pass? What's the thing I need to do? But when Jesus answers him in verse 37, he gives an answer in a different verb tense. When he says, go and do likewise, he is saying to him, go make this a lifestyle. Go do this continuing action, not a one-time event. This expert's making the mistake of thinking that to justify himself, he needed to do some meritorious deed, something that would be just so good that God would be just so impressed that God has to keep his obligation and let him into heaven. You ever find yourself sometimes searching for that one-time thing? What's the thing I have to do, God? that'll clinch it for you. And then once you find it, you can pretty well justify yourself from ever having to do something else in the future, right? You know? Hey, I, I gave a lot of money to the debt reduction fund. A lot. That should pretty well cover my giving for the rest of my life, I think. Or, hey, I taught Sunday school for a year. I went to kids' worship for two years. Doesn't that exempt me now from having to help out? Let somebody else do it. I've done my time. There's also the potential to take accepting Jesus this very same way. Sometimes I get the sense of it that people reflect on it and they talk about how they got saved. You ever hear someone say that? I got saved. Or I got religion. It's like they took a pill. Hey, I was baptized. Hey, I said the right words. I even got a certificate that says it. I did the thing I was supposed to. Why keep bothering me with more? But you know what? Strangely enough, there will always be another lost person who needs to hear about the love of Jesus. There will always be another someone mauled by Satan and left to die who needs you to stop and help. And this story helps us to see that living as a person who has received God's love and as a person who is trying to proclaim that love, it's not a one-time thing that we do. It's a lifestyle. So when we talk about praying for the one person, we're not just talking about limit yourself to one person. A man asks Jesus, what is this thing that I have to do? And the answer that Jesus gives to him is, you don't do a thing. You live a life. You reflect God's love in all circumstances. You let the love of Jesus be proclaimed wherever it needs to be heard. You make that who you are. So take a look at yourself and consider it this morning. Are you a person who is quick to help someone know Jesus because you love him? Or are you the kind of person who is putting so much effort and creative genius into explaining why you don't need to? I'm so glad that God didn't just love us once, aren't you? One event, and then he quit. And neither can we just love him enough to accept him or just do some great deed, and then I'm done with it. 
Listen to Jesus as he points a finger to the good Samaritan and then he says, you, go and do this from now on. God's love is ongoing and it needs to be lived out that way. There's a third feature about God's love that could help us, I think, get this right and that is to understand that God's love must be shown without limits and not just fit into the way that we already live. Listen again to the the second question of this expert, the remark of a person who is trying to justify himself. Look between the lines. Listen to his words as he says, I have to love my neighbor. Okay. And just who is my neighbor? He is really asking this. Who can I leave off of the list of people that I have to love? Isn't he? I have to love my neighbor. So who's on that list? Because it means everybody else is not. All the rabbis had taught Leviticus 19.18 when it said love your neighbor as yourself. They had taught that meant only Jews. And all the people who weren't Jews were on their list of people they didn't have to love. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Not only did that mean that you didn't have to care about them, you even got to hate them. What a deal. What they were ignoring were God's words in places like Isaiah chapter 42 and others where he talked about his plan to bring all people to himself. Look at Isaiah 42, 6. God said, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God was saying to his people, I am sending you for the sake of all. So here's a man who has correctly said that he ought to love his neighbor. He got it right. Okay, he'll do that. In fact, he does that. He likes his neighbors. He loves his fellow Jews, most of them. And if he can just confirm that he doesn't have to love anyone else, that'll fit well with the way that he already is. In other words, he can justify the way he doesn't care about the people who aren't on his neighbor list. Won't God be impressed? Boy, am I glad we don't ever think this way. Fact is, Jesus calls people to become something different from what they are. And when we talk about becoming a follower of Jesus here, we're not talking about inviting people to come and add a little something to your life and then going on just like you were before. The fact is, Jesus calls us to be radically different from this world. One of the ways we do that is to deliberately declare the love of Jesus to whomever we can. In other words, we need to be the Samaritan where the priests and the Levites of this world walk on by. We need to be so impressed with the love of God ourselves that we freely share it with the people that we see. God didn't generously pour it out on us so that we would be stingy with others. Are you shaped by the radical call of Jesus to be different? 
Or are you trying to justify your existing life by creating limits on things like the love of God so that it will fit into the way that you already are living? Madeline L. Engel said, if you're going to care about the fall of the sparrow, you can't pick and choose who's going to be the sparrow. It's everybody. If you find yourself trying to explain why you don't have to declare the love of Jesus to certain people, if you find yourself trying to justify why there's no need for me to be the best neighbor ever, then I suggest you save your effort. That's not the way that God has dealt with you. Neither is it the way that he has for us to deal with others. I read a story in a mission field in Zaire where there were several natives who lived close to a, a government medical station that they could go to for help. And so it really surprised some of these medical missionaries when the natives showed up at their compound, it was actually several kilometers out of their way for them to show up where the missionaries were instead of to be at the, the other compound that the government had provided. They needed medical treatment, and after taking care of them, these missionaries asked them, why did you travel so much farther to come here? And those people who had been helped told them, the medicine is the same at the other station, but the hands here are different. Wouldn't it be great if the people of our neighborhoods ended up saying that about Central Christian Church? Wouldn't that be something? Sure, there are plenty of places that offer to help meet your needs around here, but, but the hands here are different. The club downtown offered me a good time and a lot of friends, but it's different here. My fishing buddies offered to take me with them to the lake today, but there's something here that they aren't getting. Just sleeping in and having my day off for myself sounded so good, but you know what? It's empty to be when it's compared to being here. Even staying home and just being here online, which is good, is not the same as being with the people here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if by the end of this month, in neighborhoods all over this area, people from Central Christian Church will be thought of as the people who actually care about the people that are around them? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the idea that hope lives here could be seen in the way you decided to reach out to let people know you? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you opened up a door for future conversations in your front yard, for future get-togethers, for future interaction, maybe a future together forever with somebody that lives down the street from you. God wants us to live out his love toward all people deliberately without playing favorites. I believe that with all my heart. God didn't play favorites. God loved the world by giving his only son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The Father has sent his son, John tells us, to be the savior of the world. That's pretty inclusive talk. So I want to tell you this morning that that includes you, whoever you are. Whether you're joining us online, whether you're here in person, 
that God intends for you to be a part of his plan to reconcile the world to himself. And we want to be a part of helping you begin that relationship if you haven't done that. we got to remind one another that this is our job, don't we? we got to spur one another on to this because it's not easy. But we've got to do it for the sake of those people who are yet hearing the message, some for the very first time. And maybe that's you this morning. And so if that is, we want you to contact us. We want you to say, I'd like to hear more about this. That's what we want to do. We want to share Jesus with you. Hope that you're hip to that. Hope that you're ready for that. And if that's online, contact us. You can contact us in the comments right now. Uh, Somebody is online hosting, and uh, you can get in touch with us through that. Or maybe you're here in person right about now, from now to the end of when we leave here and go to Disciple Hour. This is the time just to step down to the front and say, I'm one of those people. I'd like to learn some more about this. What do I do? We want to share with you from God's Word how to be a follower of Jesus Christ. One thing I hope is very clear. It means that you live out the love of God. So I'm going to ask you, please stand up with me. We're going to have a word of prayer together. We're going to ask God to uh, be working on our hearts right now through his word. And we're going to sing a song. It's going to provide an opportunity for you uh, to make known, hey, I want to look into at least being a follower of Jesus or maybe today even become a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the challenge that Jesus gave to a man uh, many years ago that we can relate to. Because in our own lives, we, uh, Lord, I know I can look back and see the times when I was like that priest or Levite who walked by, who saw a need in someone's life, who saw that they were apart from you and found it too easy to justify reasons for not stopping, for not speaking what needed to be said. Father, I I pray that you would work on our hearts, how they need to be shaped by you and, and to be formed by you. Help us to see people the way that you do. Uh, Lord, I pray that your word today will uh, find its mark in us. I pray that it also, Lord, will uh, do a work in the hearts of those who are outside of you, who have yet to fully appreciate what it means to live life in you. Uh, God, right now, use these words. Use what your word has said to do its work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.